0: Hello and welcome to episode 96 of the Replacement Level podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Carlos Colazo. Carlos is a writer for Baseball America. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Carlos A. Collazo. Carlos, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, definitely. Happy to be here, Ross. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. Well, tell me what got you into baseball in the first place. I ask everyone that right at the top. Tell me what initially attracted you to the game.
1: Yeah, a no, great question. I think it's a sport I've played uh since i was four years old my dad his sport was always baseball so i have brothers as well so we grew up playing the game played it through t-ball up through middle school travel baseball into high school uh and then even one small school offer to like playing college but i knew that uh if i wasn't good enough to go to like a big time school i was probably going to be done playing baseball after college so i i kind of wanted to set myself up uh, for something in the game afterwards. So I went to UNC where I, I tried to put my uh, love for writing and love for baseball together uh, to get a job maybe writing about baseball one day. And fortunately enough, that's, that's kind of pass past. And uh, every day I get to wake up and go watch players and talk to scouts and just be around the game. Uh, so couldn't ask for
0: anything more. Why prospects? Was that something you were always interested in? I don't think so. I think
1: in general it was just more of a love for the game. I grew up... Uh, Probably a Braves fan, so I kind of got into the uh, the Braves blogosphere, I guess. Everyone was making their own personal blogs and just writing about the team. I really started, to, I think, I, I really fell in love with writing about the game with Sabermetrics just because I saw all this new writing uh, and advanced analytics that I, I had no idea of. I mean all my like baseball but we were just casual fans we just played it together we'd watch games when they'd come on but this was like a whole new world to me so kind of jumping in and figuring out what all this meant like how teams were analyzing players how uh, I guess baseball writers at the time were breaking down things that uh, even teams didn't necessarily seem to be thinking of at the time. Although it's not like I'm one of these, not, I haven't been around since the Bill James uh, era, obviously. So I wasn't at the very beginning, but that kind of piqued my interest. And, and I found out that the sport was so much more complex uh, than I ever could have really thought beforehand. So I think that drove my curiosity and then the prospects kind of came into play when I interned with baseball America in 2014 so it was after my sophomore year of college at unc uh, and unfortunately for me baseball america's headquarters are in durham north carolina which is just 10 minutes down the road so i jumped into that and i was fortunate enough to work with Clint longenecker as an intern and he clint currently is the uh, assistant scouting director for the Cleveland indians and obviously at the time he was covering the draft for baseball america uh, so that that was kind of my first experience in, in the whole prospect uh and draft coverage world uh, and it was something that I wasn't there with at all. So I think it's kind of a, a similar, similar to kind of figuring out the analytics and, and learning about that. It just was something I didn't know about, and I was curious about it and wanted to learn more. And and every day, uh, even today, I, I'm constantly learning more about the game. And I think that's just that that learning process is is fascinating to me, and it keeps me interested in the game
0: let's get into the draft itself we've had a few days to digest the results days one two and three are just in the books well one of the things that was interesting to me right at the top Casey Mize Joey Bart and Alec Bohm, those guys were sort of the rumor to be the top three picks in some order for much of the season here for much of the college season and it actually ended up happening that way and I feel like the preseason favorites mm-hmm. to be the number one pick that's not always how it shakes up but this year it did what can you tell me about each of those guys
1: yeah, for sure. So my is he's the first guy who really established himself as the top player in the class. He did it very early on. Um he's a guy who has always had great stuff. Uh, last season he led Division 1 stars in strikeout to walk rate, but the question with him was always the health. He was a guy who had to shut it down a few times because of an elbow injury last spring and again during the summer. And this spring he was healthy. He took the ball all of his starts. He went deep into games. And when you look at just the stuff across the board when you grade it out, he's got maybe four-plus pitches, including a splitter that's a 70-grade pitch and a lot of people the best off speed offering in the country. When you look at that stuff combined with his pitch ability, some of the best command, probably the best command in the class, uh, and his frame. I mean, he is a guy who could be a future ace if everything breaks right for him. Um, so that he's kind of been the guy at the top of the class. He's been projected to the Tigers throughout the entire time. We were just waiting to see if it happened, and, and, and it did. So it was kind of nice to see a guy who was the consensus top player get drafted in the first because that doesn't always happen, like you mentioned. Joy Bart is actually a guy who's a, a personal favorite of mine because I saw him really well when Georgia Tech came up to Chapel Hill one day. But he's a guy the Giants actually linked to early on in February when he was more of a back-of-the-first-round talents so I was like, oh, maybe they're hoping he falls to their second-round pick at the time, but he, he's a guy who performed the entire spring. He has uh, plus raw power to all fields. He's got a plus arm behind the plate, maybe more than that. He's a great receiver defensively. He has all the tools defensively to be an above-average defender at the Major League level. He calls games on his own. Uh, the hit tool maybe is the one ding you have on him. It's more of a fringe-average hit tool, um, but when you got that kind of power profile, a catcher who's uh, a good defender there, it's a it's a very... Interesting pick, and the Giants have obviously had success with catches high in the draft in recent years. Then you go to Alec Bohm and he might have the best combination of hit ability and power in the class. He's a Wichita State third baseman. You think six at third. Uh, it's a very, very exciting pick. Third baseman, take, college baseman, taking the top ten of the draft is one of the safer demographics you can find. Guys like Chris Bryant, Evan Longoria, Anthony Rendon, all those so if you if you look basically the last century, college third baseman in the top 10 almost always turn into productive players. Uh, so that's a safe pick for the Phillies who probably need a, a pretty good, safe selection after their last few drafts and without having a pick from between number three and one up seven. Nick Madrigal is a guy who is probably the best pure hitter in the college class when, when you're not including power. He's a guy who's performed everywhere he's been at Oregon State. He could be a plus-plus defender at second base of the next level, and he's got a shot to play some shortstop if you need him to in a pinch. The raw arm strength probably prevents him from being an everyday shortstop, but he does have the quickness in his hands and his footwork and his exchange to help that arm play up. He's also a plus-plus runner, uh, so maybe he can follow in the line of someone like Ozzy Albies, who's probably a better comp than a guy like Jose Altuve, who's a little bit thicker and stronger than Madrigal is. Uh, and then number five is a guy, I think all these guys were in first round consideration the whole time, but Jonathan India is a guy who was maybe seen as more of a second or a third round talent before the season. He's a guy whose scouts have liked for a while going to back to his high school days, uh, more average tools across the board with him, but he made a swing change this year and took advantage of the power that he has and really broke out in a big way, was the best performer maybe in the country from an offensive side he hit really well in the sec was hitting close to 400 for a while there and really his power just took off but he's a guy who can safely stick at third base you can also maybe play him at shortstop or second base in a pinch if you need um but three or five college guys at the top excuse me is a little bit different than we've seen in previous years but all these guys are certainly a valid top pick and it's it's been a fun class to watch
0: I want to go back to Bart for a second. I really just catchers in general. So much of a catcher's value comes from the defense with Statcast and with some of the new metrics, we're able to, to get a better grip on pitch framing and even things like blocking wild pitches and, and blocking pitches in the dirt. How much of that are we able to scout or how much of that is available with college or even high school catchers? I think for teams right
1: now, they have the data. There are a lot of Division one programs, even, even programs at the Division two and Division three levels, uh, and JUCOS as well, that are starting to, to put Trackman systems in their ballparks. So you have to do a little bit more work than with StatCast to actually get the framing metrics together. But we actually did a fun project with some of the high school players where we basically just took the pitch location data from Trackman at events. Uh, I think it was Tournament Stars, actually, where they have Trackman installed. And you can basically replicate the strike zone and see. Um, how catchers do getting strikes called out of the zone and how, how many balls are called in the zone. Uh, so you get some rougher framing metrics than probably at the professional levels, but the technology is certainly coming along. I've heard from some teams that internally see him as an excellent receiver. That's probably a combination of just old-fashioned scouting and also using those analytics that are starting to creep into the, to the college game. But um, all tools are all there. And he also, I think one thing that stands out is he calls a very impressive game at the college level. That doesn't really happen a lot with catchers being in charge of pitch calling, just because a lot of coaches like to kind of get their hands in there and, and, uh, and control everything from a uh, pitch selection standpoint. But Bart definitely has all the tools to be a plus defender. I think it's just a matter of cleaning up some footwork with him, and he's right there.
0: Two highly rated pitchers slipped. Matthew Libertore went 16 to the Rays and Brady Singer 18 to the Athletics. Why did each of those guys fall?
1: We were surprised when this was kind of
0: unfolding, as you mentioned, both highly rated. We had
1: Brady Singer number four on our board, Matthew LibraTor number two. Almost every person I talked to said was the top prep pitcher. I think it's a situation of a team like the Padres, who we thought – I think they definitely were in on Libretor. Uh They were looking for some other options that maybe were a little bit cheaper at number seven. So once he slid past that, um, the Rays and the Royals, they're the teams that had the two biggest bonus pools – in this draft. So obviously you can't make deals beforehand, but it's a exactly a well secret that you have an idea of where guys are going, what their signing price, what signability is going to be. Uh, So it almost makes sense that these guys to. I mean, they're two top five talents and they went to two of the teams that have the most uh, bonus, the biggest bonus pools of the draft. So I guess in hindsight, we probably shouldn't have been as surprised as we were just because previously, and it, it's been a little bit tougher under the current CBA to slide guys down to, to other picks, but it looks like that's what happened in this situation here with both of these guys, because they performed. Uh, Brady Singer's more of a, a safe, um, pretty safe to say he's going to have a major career and be a solid player. He did, might not have as much upside as some of these other guys, but he's got Aaron Nola comes, uh, and Aaron Nola's been pretty good in the major leagues, and Matthew Liebertor is a guy who has – three potential plus pitches and maybe a fourth since he added a slider with a, a six-five frame as a left hander. So two very, very impressive picks that you normally don't
0: see going in the middle of the first round. Who were some of your favorite picks outside of the top five? Who were some of your favorite picks in the first round of the draft? The one you mentioned, Libertor, just because we had him
1: ranked so highly, uh, I think that's very impressive. I like uh, Logan Gilbert at number 14 to the Mariners. He's a college pitcher with Stetson who had a fastball that was In the mid-90s over the summer, he was maybe the most dominant pitcher in the Cape Cod League, which is the premier summer Bat League for college players, and his fastball is intriguing just because it plays up. Uh, It was actually in the low 90s for much of the spring, a tick down from what Scouts had seen before, but it's a pitch that he's able to get swings and misses with frequently in the zone. He can elevate that pitch and get swings and misses because his extension is elite you compared his extension uh, to major league pitchers, definitely above average. And he's a guy who also started pitching as a high school junior. Uh, So he's been pitching less frequently than college pitchers his age. And he's consistently gotten better and better every season. So I think he's a guy who has some upside remaining. Um, Normally might not be the case for college pitchers his age. Another guy I really like is, let's do a hitter, since we've talked about pitchers a little bit lately, but Anthony Siegler at number 23 to the Yankees. Um, High school catchers are risky historically, but Siegler is a guy ambidextrous pitcher in high school. He throws from the mid to upper 80s from the left side and gets up to 92 from the right side. But his pro future is behind the plate. He has a chance to be a plus defender there as well, very polished receiver for a high school kid with a plus arm. He's also a switch hitter at the plate, and he's a guy who's pretty much hit at every event that he went to over the summer. During the fall and then this spring as well, he's faced some really good pitchers, including a guy like Cole Wilcox, who actually slipped in this draft, but he's a guy throwing in the mid-90s, and Siegler had one game this spring where he went 3-4 in the playoffs against him, so a lot of things to like with Siegler there to the Yankees.
0: You mentioned the Yankees pick, so let's talk about the Red Sox pick, too. I like that the Red Sox seem to have a clear strategy going into this draft. They went after power. They went after power bats, and they went after power arms. Tell me about the first few picks.
1: Yeah, so their first one is Tristan um, pick number 26. He's a guy who was projected all over the first round. Um, outside of Nolan Gorman, he probably has the most raw power of anyone in the class. He's got a very, very patient and disciplined approach at the plate. He's a guy who's not afraid to take a walk. Uh, and for a guy who has that much power at this level, it's, it's pretty impressive to see that kind of discipline.
0: He's a big kid, too. He's 6'4", 238. Exactly, yeah, he's a big kid. I think 238
1: might be a little on the higher side now because he did a really nice job cleaning up his body over the off season. He's got fantastic work ethic. The Red Sox drafted him as a third baseman. Uh, he's played there for his high school team, but he's also played first base for Team USA. I think most scouts project him to move over to first because of that frame, but he has a plus arm. He's more athletic than you'd probably think given his size, so he has a chance for third, but his bat is, is enough power to play at, at first base as well.
0: He's also born in uh, the year 2000, so now now people are getting drafted in the first round. Born in the year 2000, so there's something to be said right there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> He's a guy that reclassified. He was originally in 2019. I think he would have been old for the 2019 class, but he reclassified for 2018. And It is weird to see uh, guys that are drafted this century going... But uh, he, he's definitely polished for his age.
0: And I don't know if this, this uh, affects him as he seems to have genuine lights out power. But I'm curious how power is being graded as a tool now that there's more home runs in Major League Baseball. There's been a significant power surge over the last two and a half, three years. Uh, some of that is obviously attributed mm-hmm. to the ball, but there's more power in the game right now. And I'm curious how that affects how you scout power and how you grade power with some of these prospects.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. That's something that we've grappled with this entire year because uh, obviously we've noticed it as well. We've read all the things that, that smart people in the game like Ben Lindbergh and, and other guys I think I believe you've had on this podcast before. I'm sure they've talked about it. Um, but it's something we've asked teams about. I think at this point most of the teams we've talked to are kind of waiting to see if this is going to be something that continues or if this is just maybe a little blip that all return to normalcy. Um, it's tough to project power now. I think most teams will tell you that I think maybe you give guys a little bit more of a chance to tap into some power. A guy like Ozzie Albies, I think he had only a couple runs in his first three years, maybe was even one or two in his first three years of professional ball. Um, then he comes up to the major league level and he's hitting just dozens. So I think maybe you leave it as an outside chance that guys are going to tap into it more, but for the most part, I think the scales going to be the same. Uh, just people are more aware that with a swing change uh, in the type of environment that the major league is experiencing, uh, I think you, you probably just don't write guys off for power as easily. But obviously, just passes power. is going to play in this in this environment, or if you go back to the, the mid-2000s, thousands, will play there as well.
0: Did anybody reach in the first round? Do you feel like there were any first-rounders that were uh, a bit of a reach on day one? Well, yeah, if you look at our board,
1: uh, Kyler Murray is a significant reach for Oklahoma at number nine. Uh, although his is an interesting situation as a guy who has a chance to start at quarterback for Oklahoma. But he's a high-risk pick for the A's. They were one of the tougher things to kind of figure out and see what they were were going in on with the ninth pick of the draft. They decided to take a high-risk, high-reward type of pick. He's an uber-athletic center fielder who has improved drastically uh, in baseball over the last few years. He's a guy who has a chance to hit for above-average power, play a plus defensive center field uh what's interesting is as a, as a quarterback you might think that he's got plus arm strength as well we've actually heard scouts that give him as low as a 30 arm right now and that's probably just because the arm slot they are throwing with uh, in football is significantly different than baseball definitely a risky pick and a guy we didn't see going certainly in the top 10 picks
0: let's move on to day two and three second third beyond, well beyond in the draft. Who were some of your favorite picks in day two and day three of the draft?
1: Yeah, I think a guy like Will Banfield went in the second round, the supplemental round, 69 to the Marlins. Uh, We touched on Roger catcher already and Anthony Kegeler, but Will Banfield is a guy who has some of the strongest defensive tools of any catcher in this class. He's got plus-plus arm strength. He's a fantastic receiver. He's caught elite high school pitchers since he was 14 years old guy like Ethan Hankins, who went number 35 to the Indians. Banfield has been catching him for a long time now. So I think he has uh, plus hands behind the plate. He's strong. And he also has uh, some plus raw power to the pull side, more of an ambush pull power guy at the the moment. Um, But he's a guy who definitely already profiles as a defensive catcher uh, and a backup catcher. But if he can figure out the hit tool a little bit, uh, he could be a star behind the plate. Another guy who's exciting is Mike Ciani. He went in the fourth round to the Reds. He was a guy who had a chance to go in the first round. He's a high school outfielder, maybe one of the best defensive outfielders in the high school class. A plus-plus defender there with plus strength. He can get up to 94 on the mound from the left side. He got plus speed as well. Uh, you could probably give him plus tools with everything except power. He's a good hitter. Uh, if you think he grows some power, he's a true five-tool guy. So getting that in the fourth round is impressive. He's Pretty physically mature at this point, so maybe you can't project on more with him. Um, but he's very exciting there as well.
0: The Red Sox got someone ranked highly on some sites. Uh, Nicholas Northcutt. They got him late. They got him at pick number three forty. Yeah. I saw him in the top hundred on several lists. Is he someone that you, that the Red Sox actually have a chance at signing at that value at that pick?
1: Yeah. So we had him ranked sixty nine. So we saw him as a potential day one guy. And like you mentioned, he went after the tenth round. So the way the way the draft breaks out is normally if you get if you have a high school guy slip um it's it's tough to sign some of these guys I think after the first two days we expected Northcutt to get to campus but um from rounds 11 through maybe 15 if you're drafting a high school guy of that value there uh you probably have some money left over from your top 10 round picks uh the Red Sox took a number of college players there and guys like uh Jaron Duran, Eli Moreau, Ryan Brown, and Grant Williams are potential money savers. So if they save some, some bonus pool money at those picks, they could go over slot with Nick Northcutt at number 11. So the first $125,000, I believe, is the number. That that money does not count against your pool. Uh, so it would only start counting against your pool once you went over that. So the Red Sox have a real chance to over slot at 11 and actually get Northcutt to sign. He's a Vanderbilt commit. He has a great combination of hitting ability and power a chance to stick at third base um, and play there. So I do think with just the fact that they drafted him in the 11th round uh, is, a, is a good sign that they think they can sign him. And they're a team that's had some success signing guys later in the draft after they've fallen. I think last year they took Alex Scherf in I believe the fifth round, and he was a guy who, once he got past day one, people assumed he was going to hit campus, and they go overspot for Scherf. Uh, so I think you see that situation unfold with Northcutt as well.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if teams like the Red Sox or the Cubs or the Yankees or the Dodgers, the prestige teams have an advantage with signing those later round picks? Cause let's face it, there's a different thing getting drafted by the Red Sox or the Yankees than there is by getting drafted by the Marlins.
1: Yeah, I think so. That might, that might factor into it for, for some people, depending on what they think of teams. It definitely doesn't hurt to be a team uh, as story does. The Red Sox has had such good success recently, but I think at the end of the day, it, it comes down to the money.
0: What teams do you like? What teams at the end of the draft do you feel like had a good draft? And what teams do you feel like missed the mark a little bit?
1: It's always tough to grade out um, drafts right afterwards just because there's so many years that have to pass before we, we find out how these guys actually turned out. But as far as looking at drafts, excited me. I think um, the Rays we already mentioned, they got Matthew Levertor at 16, obviously the number two guy on our board. They also got Shane McClanahan. Who ended the season number eight on our big 500 He, a left-handed college pitcher who can get up to 100 miles per hour. He has the most electric arm of the class. And they also got a guy like Nick Schnell with their 32nd pick, uh, who is maybe the best high school hitter this spring. He's a guy who brings plus power to the table as a chance to stick in center field. So those three picks, they're all guys who we could go higher than where the Rays actually got them. Uh, so that's a pretty good value pick for them. Uh, another team is the Royals. They got uh, Brady Singer and Jackson Coar in I believe, much later than, than you would have expected those two guys to go. Those are potential middle of the rotation arms. But um, yeah, they also got Daniel Lynch and Chris Bubich, who are two college left-handers who, who could have been first-round pick. Well, they were in one case. Daniel Lynch was a first-round pick, and Bubich went in the supplemental round. But the teams that had – Uh, Those extra picks in the first round, even the Indians, I thought they had an interesting draft as well. They really took advantage of the the bonus money and the picks they had. The the Indians got a guy like Ethan Hankins at 35. Before the season, Hankins was a guy who had a chance to become the first ever high school right-hander taken number one overall. His fastball is the best pitch, the best fastball in the class. He's a guy that gets up into the upper 90s with elite life on the pitch. And they also had some late round picks, Steven Kwan in the fifth round out of Oregon State, a speedy center fielder, and Raynell Delgado in the sixth round, who's maybe a high school guy who could have gone higher than that with some potential as a switch hitter and a chance to stick at shortstop.
0: Did any team consistently reach? Did they reach on pick after pick? Did they just have their own board and just, you know, reached on everything?
1: There's no team that jumps out to me or like where I think, wow, that was really bad.
0: That was really bad here. That was really bad there. I think... The
1: biggest reach we already mentioned is just Kyler Murray.
0: Yeah, and there's rumors now that he's actually signed, right? That he's signed a five million deal. Five million. Yeah, deal I saw deals. those, and that's
1: it's crazy. Yeah, I, I heard close to five million. So if you've heard, if you heard more recently than you might know better. But that's that would be above slot for nine. And and when I saw that pick, I was like, okay, maybe that's going to be an under-slot deal where they save some money and get a guy, and then in the later rounds, it's a first round talent. Uh, and I think they still did that. They drafted Jeremy Ironman in the second supplemental round, and he was a guy who didn't have a great spring, but uh, he entered the year as the best shortstop in the class, and he's a guy that has a plus arm, plus raw power, uh, and he's a plus runner as well. So I think while the first pick for me might be a bit risky, maybe a bit of a reach looking at our board, they also got a guy like him, like Jeremy Ironman, later down the board that in some ways kind of makes up for it. Um, So there's one I think that I would crush at this point.
0: I want to ask you just about some of the best tools. We've hit upon some of them quickly, but who has the best fastball in the draft?
1: Best fastball, I would say Shane McClanahan, which to raw velocity, especially from the left-handed side. Uh, Ethan Hankins, we mentioned just because more because of the life that Hankins gets on that pitch when he's healthy. Casey Mize also has a very good fastball. It's a easily a plus pitch. could be ticked tick or uh, a half grade in that. Brady Singer. He's a guy who's in the mid '90s with excellent life on his fastball as well. So I think those are the guys who come to mind. You're not looking at some of these college relievers who are just flamethrowers like a Durbin Flynn or someone like that.
0: How about the best breaking ball?
1: Uh, best breaking ball, I would give it to Carter Stewart. He's a prep right-hander out of Florida that the Braves took number eight overall. This is a pitch that, uh, per TrackMan, is the highest spin rate of any any pitch TrackMan has ever recorded. On average, it's a three thousand plus RPM type pitch, and he lands that for strikes. I love that pitch. I personally would say it's the best breaking ball in the class. Another one to consider is Griffin Roberts' slider. He's a pitcher out of Wake Forest. He's a guy who's a converted reliever and started this year with some success. Uh, Tim Kate has an excellent breaking ball as well. Short left-hander out of Connecticut. He was injured some this season, but that pitch when he's healthy is also a, a, an easy plus pitch. So those those handful of off-speed pitches are, are the ones I point to. On the offensive side, best right-handed power. Let's see. Right-handed power is a little tougher. I mean, Joe Bart. Uh, he'd probably be an easy selection for that. A lot of the power in this class is from the left-handed side. Um, Northcott is also a guy who we already talked about. He's interesting. I'm kind of just scrolling down our list. Um, yeah, let's just go with Joey Bart. I think he his pride plays fairly.
0: And how about left-handed power, more of that this year?
1: Yeah, so you got a guy like on the college side, Seth Beer. We've had scouts throw 70 grades on his prior before. Nolan Gorman is a guy who also has... Plus, plus, raw power. Tristan Cassis is another guy. Trevor Larnock is a guy who has power with Oregon State. And Larnock is interesting because his plays to the opposite field, similar to Joey Bart's, extremely well. Uh, So those those are the ones I mentioned.
0: Fastest guy?
1: A couple guys to consider here. Jordan Adams, he's a uh, two-sport guy who was committed to North Carolina before he was drafted number 17 to the Angels. I think he's an 8th grade runner. Excuse me, an 80 grade runner. Xavier Edwards is a middle infielder out of Florida, high school guy. He's also a top-of-the-scale runner and someone further down the board who actually I think just got drafted very late. Um, He could have been a a day-two guy. Actually, I'm not even sure if he got drafted. Uh, But Max Mariuszek is a guy out of Texas, Amarillo, Texas. He didn't have a great year offensively, but he is an 80-grade runner and maybe the best runner in the high school class, in the college class. I think of guys like Kyler Murray, Jake Mangum
0: isn't there a guy, I saw that on, on somewhere that the Diamondbacks drafted somebody named Blaze. You're telling me Blaze isn't the fastest guy in the draft? That's disappointing.
1: <laughs> Did the D-backs draft my Man, Blaze Alexander. So Blaze actually, yeah, they drafted him in the 11th round. So another thing with Northcutt might be signable there if you go over slot. I wish Blaze was the this guy, but uh, the thing with Blaze is he might have the best infield arm in the class. He's a guy who throws 99 miles per hour across the diamond from shortstop. So his 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 pitches, not his pitches, his throws are blazing, so that'll make up for his lack of plus speed.
0: And lastly, the best defender in this class?
1: On the college side, I would think uh, if we go with a shortstop, Caden Grenier out of Oregon State. He's a fantastic defender at shortstop. Jeremy Pena out of Maine also comes to mind. On the high school side, sticking at shortstop, a guy like Blaze Alexander with his arm. He also has very impressive defensive tools. Xavier A comes to mind bryce Tarang ex shortstop let's uh, stick with the premium positions uh catcher uh will banfield and Anthony anthony siegler very impressive defensively and in the outfield uh, we mentioned a guy like mike Siani but but joe gray is also a guy who's a very good defender maybe moves to a corner but uh plus arm strength of him plus runner uh good instincts and reads in the field
0: Lastly, before I let you go, do you feel like any trend developed this year, or even looking at the last two years together, do you feel like that there are any trends that are uh, teams are doing differently than they were doing five or ten years ago?
1: Yeah. So one of the things we were looking into this year was how teams accounted for the high school right-handers in this class, because that is a a demographic that's kind of uh, it's been tough for teams to have some success with drafting the top guys at the top of the board. So we've done some studies on that that show. You can really get uh, good high school pitchers to pan out the second, third, or even fourth rounds as, as easily as some of the first round guys do. Part of that might be scouting velocity too much. So you see a bunch of the high school right-handers that were taken early. At least a lot of those guys were very good strike throwers. They weren't necessarily guys that just come out. Uh, were able to just come out and throw hard. Uh, Carter Stewart and Grayson Rodriguez obviously throw hard. They're the first two high school right-handers off the board, but they also throw strikes. A guy like Cole Wynn does not have an overwhelming fastball, at least relative to some of these other guys, and he went 15th. Um, Ethan Hankins, Gunnar Hoagland were guys later down that are very impressive strike throwers. So maybe teams are starting to draft more for pitchability at the high school level than pure arm strength, because a lot of those guys have uh, turned out to not have much success. Another thing that, that I noticed, and then I'll probably have to dive deeper into this to see if this is true, is there seems to be a lot of ability college guys and, and hit ability high school players taken uh, with the way that power is at the middle league level. Maybe teams start to value just a pure hit tool more over guys that, that just have a ton of power and swing and miss a little bit more. Although there are some of those guys as well, so that, that might not actually bear out uh, as, as strongly as I'm maybe leading it to to seem like
0: you've been listening to carlos Colazo. carlos is a writer for baseball america you can give him a follow on twitter at carlos a collazo carlos thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today
1: yeah awesome thanks for having me man i really appreciate it is fun